Well, good morning. Welcome to Parkwood. I hope you've got a couple things in front of you. I hope you have a copy of God's Word. If not, we have some back there on the back table. We also have both an info guide and sermon notes. And uh, more about that later. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis. Go ahead. We're going to be looking specifically at chapter 24 today. But let's turn. go ahead and turn to t- chapter 23. We're going to lay a little background out here in just a minute. We've been looking at the narrative of the Bible, biting it off in sections and trying to see what God wanted His people to know and what God wants want us to know today. I know we've all been challenged by the terrorism that's been going on in Manchester and, and uh, many of us who have children think about the, the parents and um, their either brokenheartedness or fear of knowing whether your child has gotten caught up in this uh, that's going on all over the world. Uh, read uh, a busload of Coptic Christians were killed this week or maybe last week in Egypt. And terrorism is part of our life. So what's the goal of terrorism? Uh, terrorism's goal is not to lead a full-out assault on a country. They don't have to. Terrorism's goal is to destabilize. And so their job, their, what their desire is, their mission is to simply, whether within or without, is they go in and do these acts of terror, thereby making, making the people feel fearful, less secure, and causing a destabilizing effect in the region. If they can do that, they know this, this region will eventually fail. And so this is, the, this is what they hope to do in any region that we see that this happens and. You know, as I was thinking about that and thinking about our own situation, and it's not many of us that have ever went through a membership conversation and realized that if you've been in uh, the life and body of a church very long, at least the church that we see, uh, you've been a part of a church divide and hurt and pain and, and realize that terrorism is alive and well in the church. People from within and attacks from within and attacks from without. And it's easy for any of us to get discouraged and cynical and actually think, is the church going to fail? Is, will the devil have its day in the life of the church? And it's, it's, if we sit around and we watch the news all day more than we read God's Word, we are seemingly destined to become negative, pessimistic, cynical, defeated, blame-shifting believers. Is this what God wants for His chosen people? What can we learn about this narrative today? As, as we saw last week, as Abraham had been told to offer up Isaac, his only son Isaac, on an altar, we, remember we said this was a test. A test of the authenticity of his own faith. Did Was he clinging to that which God has given him, or was he clinging to God? And so we saw that he passed the test, and now we see an Isaac who is some 40 years old, not married, therefore having no offspring. And Abraham and Sarah are are beginning to decline. So, what we did last week is what we want to do this week. So when we look at this narrative today, and what we're going to do is like we did last week, we're just going to go through the narrative. What, does God, what did the narrator want the original audience to get? 
What was their perspective? What did he want to teach them? What was, in other words, before we ask the question, how is this relevant to me today? We must ask the question, how is this relevant to Israel? Without that, we can get no biblical application. And so I hope we've seen some recurring themes here week after week as we see the, the narrator is passionately trying to teach God's people that your very existence depends on the providence of God. In other words, you wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for God. Because remember, Israel, Abraham was old and Sarah was not only old, she was barren. So there was no way for you to even exist. And yet, God quickened the womb of Sarah and now they had Isaac. So their very existence... So how would they take that reality that they had learned about God and, their, and themselves and then apply it into their present life? Because they would find themselves in what? In, in bondage and captivity and battles and wildernesses. And how would they begin to say, okay, how do we, are we just going to cease to exist here? Is this it for us? Is, is the Israel as a people just going to fail? Or does God have a plan? So the narrator wants to teach them... Your existence today will be safe and secure because you're God's people and God providentially cares and protects His people. So we enter back now into the story then. Remember where we left off? We said that Abraham and Isaac and the test. And so now look, turn with me to Genesis 22. Look with me at verse 20. So this picks up after the test. And it says, now after these things, it was told to Abraham. And he goes, and behold, Milcah has born your children to your brother Nahor. And it goes on and lays out the lineage. And even in verse 23, cast a little vision of where we're going. Bethel fathered Rebekah. So we have in chapter 22 this lineage of the genealogy of Nahor. Very important. We'll get to that in a minute, but what we want to see here is for Abraham living in the land of Canaan, that is not his ancestral home. It's back east. So he's not at home anymore, but that's where his ancestors are. It's important to couch the understanding today that he's not at home, but his family, his kin people are home. And so as we come into chapter 23, we have this sad account. Abraham's beloved Sarah is dead. Dead at 127 years old. Important. So what Abraham does with his beloved is he buries her in the land of promise. So what is that saying? No turning back for us. No turning back for our people. We are here, and he's, he's even saying it by the way he buries his wife. We're going to, I'm going to bury her in the land of promise. And so, we have this, not only that he buries his, his wife in the land of promise, we have this picture that would culturally would be a big deal then. Sarah's tent is empty. In other words, the matriarch of the family has died, and now there is no matriarch. No woman. Her tent is empty, and so we get in chapter 24 and verse 1, and we see, now Abraham 
was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And so you see what that's setting us up for. The matriarch is, is dead. Sarah is gone. He's buried his wife. And Abraham is old. He's lived his life. And though his mission is drawing to a close, we still see he has a firm resolve to trust his God in God's faithfulness. Not only that, but to set his family in a place in the fa- his family in a place where they understand we are, are here because God has promised us something, and we're not going anywhere. And so the theme this morning, what we want to see in his text is, is in God's faithfulness, the Lord provides Rebecca. The Lord provides her as his appointed wife to Isaac, in order that the seed, this seed that comes from the line of a woman, may continue. So we first see the Lord's faithfulness in Abraham's sacred commission. And he commissions in verse 2, he commissions his servant. And he makes him, binds him into an oath. We've been, we've been seeing these continual oaths were a big part of their culture. And so in verse 2, in chapter 24, Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife from my sons from the daughters of the Canaanites, whom, among whom I dwell, but you will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife from my son Isaac. This is one of the last recorded words of Abraham, and he has a couple of conditions here that he set up. So we, you know, we ask the question, you know, you know, Abraham, what's the big deal? I mean, why don't you just get Isaac to marry just a rich Canaanite woman? Besides, wouldn't that help the promise along? You won't land. <laughs> Once you marry a Canaanite woman and her family's rich in the area, have a lot of land, wouldn't that help? Well, turn with me back to Genesis 9. Genesis 9. Look at verse 18. It's a story of Noah. Verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark was Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Look at the parentheses if it's in your Bible. Ham was the father of Canaan. And so the place where Abraham was living was, from, was Ham's descendants, who were the, was the descendants of Ham. Now skip down with me to verse 25. If you don't remember what happened after they came out of the ark and with the vineyard and all that stuff, you can read about that later. This was the result of it. Verse 25. He said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So what we're seeing when the time comes, and this is simply going to come to pass. So in Genesis 12, God separates from the nations a people that he will call Israel. Here's what one commentator said. If Isaac is to inherit the land, he must not marry those destined to disinherit the land. So he says, you will not marry, you don't let my son marry a Canaanite. Send her back to her kinsman. Send him, send a servant, send, go back to my kinsman. Find a wife from him there. So then we ask the question, well, why don't Isaac just go back home? Why don't he go back to his roots? I mean, that's where his family is. If he wants to marry inside his own family, why don't he just go home? We see in this oath, in verse 6, it was very important, verse 6 and verse 8, as part of this oath, it says, see to it that you do not take my son back there. 
Why? Look at verse 7, the first part of 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore me, to your offspring I will give this land. So what is he saying? He's saying to his sons, he's saying to his servant, your presence in this land is going to reassure you and it's going to reassure our people. God has made us a promise. We're not going anywhere. God will fulfill his word. And so in understanding, and the servant's beginning to understand his mission now. Okay, so I'm supposed to go back to where your family is, and I'm supposed to find a single woman from, you know, all right, what if she won't come? So the servant had concerns. <laughs> what if she don't come? Why won't she come back with me? Am I supposed to bring him back? And he said, no way. No way. You're not taking him back. So how does he assure him? Look at... At verse 7, the end of verse 7. The mission's success is based on God's providence. Look at what it says. He will send his angels before you, and you shall take a wife for my son there. Do you see it? So they're going, Your mission is going to be a success. Why? Because God's going to go before you. That's how you can be assured. Not because the gifts that I'm going to send. Not because of how smooth you can talk. But because God goes before you. This was nothing new to God's people. Turn with me to Exodus. Exodus 23. Exodus 23. Look at verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place the who? Who's prepared it? I have prepared it. See it? I, I will send my angel before you to guard you. I'm preparing that place. Now, turn with me now to Exodus 32. 32, look at verse 34. But now go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you before. Behold, my angels shall go before you, nevertheless, in that day when I visit, I will visit their sins upon them. God's promising. I'm going to go before you. So we have a clear mission. And we have a clear understanding. God's sovereign guidance, God's sovereign provision is going with you, even before you. So we have... Abraham, in faith, sending, and now we see the servant going. God's faithfulness by the servant to trust and obey. Think about this. This mission for him was, was seemingly impossible. A, a perpetual needle in a haystack. How, how am I going to find this, this woman? And how, why in the world would she go back with me? Look at verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down there outside the city, by the well of the water, at the time of the evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And so we have verse 10, represents about a 400-mile track. So he gets 10 camels, he travels 400 miles, he gets there just about the time of the evening where the women come out to draw the water. So this is the mission, okay? So I'm supposed to go 400 miles, 
find a single woman from your family that's willing to come back and marry a dude she's never met and that their family's never met. And so, naturally, he would have some concerns. So what did he do? Look at verse 12. The servant's a man of prayer. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Success there is a key word in this narrative. Success equals finishing the mission. That's what success was. Success wasn't getting halfway. Success was, i got to accomplish the mission that my master has given us. So he's coming to this point of impossibility and said, God, I can't accomplish this mission. I need you. I don't even know how I'm going to go about it. So he trusted in God's guidance. He prays. Praying is for those who are dependent. You simply need to know to understand how much you're depending on your God, you nearly need to look at your prayer life. Because prayer is what dependent people do. And so he, in dependence, he prays, and he's still praying when he, he comes up, he, he says this test. So Lord, I, here's what I'm thinking. Help me with this. Look at verse 13 and 14. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw. Let the young woman to whom I, I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to your master. So you see it, he's, he's saying, Lord, I need to know whom you've appointed. I need to know who the anointed one is. I don't know it. You do. You've already picked her. So, so here's this threefold test. I, that she gives me water, that she gives my camels water, and oh yeah, that she'd be the right, in the right family. Now giving him water is no big deal. But water in ten camels is no day at the park. <laughs> Did a little reading it. How much water can ten thirsty camels drink after driving, after driving, after riding uh, 400 <laughs> camels are riding. That was, that, that was funny. I didn't mean to do that either. You know. And uh, one thirsty camel can drink 25 gallons of water. So the jar that she hold, was holding on her shoulder was about three gallons. And so that could equal 80 to 100 draws up out of the well. So you see there's a little bit of character testing going on here too. When we got through with this, there was no doubt Rebecca wasn't a lazy woman. And so we, we see Abraham's trust in God's faithfulness. Go! God's going to go before you. And he's going to provide. And so we have the servant going. And when he gets there, he says, God, I need you to provide. Can't do it. Don't know how to do it. Show me your will. And so now we see the Lord's, God, the Lord's covenant faithfulness in God's providential provision. So imagine this, he's praying, and he hasn't even got out in Jesus' name yet. <laughs> and, and here up walks a woman. And, and we get more information than he gets. It says, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, 
came out with her water jar on her shoulder. But you see, the servant didn't know that. The woman was walking up. He didn't know who she was yet. He was barely finished praying. Here comes up a, a woman. And so what does he do? He implements the test. He had asked the Lord to answer. So the servant, verse 17, Then the servant ran to meet her. Please give me a little water. Drink from your jar, she said. Drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar and gave him something to drink. He's like, man, test one. Just give me something to drink. And from there, he had to do nothing other than to sit there and wonder. In verse 19, it says, When she had finished giving him to drink, she said, I will draw water from the camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw, and she drew out for all of his camels. Second test passed. And I love verse 21. It says, The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. I mean, the man's sitting there going, Okay, could it, could it really be this is the one that the Lord has appointed? The Lord's chosen her. Could it, could it be? And he was just amazed. Could it? And I know everybody's been taking tests and EOGs and final exams, and you always have one that you dread worse than any of the rest of them. And so here was the last test. Whose daughter are you? Because you said it didn't matter how much water, the camels might have been happy. <laughs> but the servant wasn't going to be happy if she was in the wrong family. And so in verse 23, we see, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And in verse 24, she said, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And you realize, number three, she's in the right family. I mean, the dude pulls up to the whale in his camel. Praise, the next thing you know, all three points of the test. How is he going to respond to this identification now? That not only did she serve him and serve her animals, but she's from the right family. Look at verse 26. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. Listen, as for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the, the house of my master's kinsman. So I ask you, based off the narrative, what can we learn about the nature and character of our God? The servant said, I didn't do it. God did it. Down to the last very detail. And so the servant explains then to her what God has done. This servant loves to do this. He's going to recount God's faithfulness. This is important. And so he explains it to her, and then she runs and tells her family. Verse 28 and 29. It says, Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out towards the man to the spring, and as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the the words of Rebecca, his sister. In other words, we're getting introduced to a little rascal right here named Laban. Laban's going to come up later in a little bit of run in here with 
Jacob, we'll look at that a little bit later, but Laban is just a little bit greedy. And so the servant had put bracelets on Rebekah and a ring on her nose, and Laban sees it, so he runs out, very hospitable. Hey, come in. Lay out the spirit. Look at verse 33. Verse 33 in chapter 24. There's an urgency of the servant's mission. Verse 33 says, Then the food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. <laughs> and so, this is the dude that is driven by the mission that he's been given. He said, no, no, my mission's not done. There's no time to eat. Because, you see, if the family wouldn't have let her leave, it wouldn't have mattered whose family was she. It wouldn't have mattered about all the other tests. And so this was a man on a mission. And so then the servant gives this speech. And they said, say on, brother. So he gives this speech. And again, in vivid detail, he recounts God's faithfulness, God's direction, God's provision. Now, before we get to the family's response, we ask the question, how as we as New Testament believers can fight the tendency to sit around and watch the news all day and become negative, cynical, short-sighted believers? You recount God's faithfulness often. God's common grace that sits beside of you today and God's special grace of who we are in Christ and what we've been promised, you recount it regular over and over as we see this brother did. And so, and when he got through recounting this faithfulness in detail, we see in verse 50, Then Laban and Bethuel answered him, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you good or bad. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's sons. Listen, as the Lord has spoken. What were they saying? Sounds like to us, the Lord's already made the decision. What can we say? If God's already chose her, who are we to stand in her way? Take her and go. Now it's time to eat. <laughs> now it's time to eat. And so he pays the bride price, all the gifts that we talked about earlier. He brings it in. Have a feast. All right, we're going to head out first thing in the morning, and now in verse 55, we have this little second tension. Sounds a lot like Laban. We'll talk about him later. Yeah, but give us ten more days with her. That was the request. And so in verse 56, it says, But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. So we see in this brother's heart here is an urgency and mission. We do not see nowhere in Scripture this idea that because God is providentially in control, I'm supposed to be less urgent in mission. We see just the opposite. We see that this man is desperately in the, i got to finish my mission. God has put me on a mission. He has prospered my way. Don't, don't get in my way now. I've I, I got to get her home. Success equals mission is accomplished. 
Turn with me, it's not in your notes, to Matthew, Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 14. says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Brothers and sisters, we know the mission of God is not done because the end has not come. And until the end comes, we have a mission. And we must be more urgent than we see this brother here in accomplishing the mission that God has given us to do. And so we have this tension. Let her have us for ten more days. And, and I'm saying, no, no, no. no let's, don't stop now. God's providing. We, we've got to go. And so they said, well, ask, let's ask her. And so in verse 57, 58, look at verse 58. It says, and they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? This is this faith-filled woman here. She's going back to a place she's never been to marry a dude she's never seen. And she says, I will go. Why? Because this is what God has appointed. And so her family in verse 59 and 60 prays a prayer of blessing over her and them and sends her on this way. And then we have this immediate shift of the scene to back home. So the, the scene shifts in verse 63 of, to Isaac. Got this picture. I wonder what he was thinking about. When I, and Isaac went out to meditate in the field towards evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. When she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to her servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. Look at the word, verse 63, meditate. So he went out in the field to meditate. That word means exactly what you think it means. It means to reflect deeply. It could even mean to pray. To pray, to ponder, to even take a stroll through the field. wonder what he was thinking about. It's just as stressful on him as it was on her. She's going back to marry a guy she's never met, and he's wondering wonder what she's going to be like. Wonder, wonder if God provided for her. Is he coming back and the camel's empty? And they look and their eyes meet. But what the narrator wants you to see is in verse, 50, is verse 66. Is it says, again, third time, the servant recounts God's faithfulness to Isaac. Again, he goes through and says, you're not going to believe this. Let me tell it to you again. He's getting good at it by now. It's the third time he's told the story at least. And he goes through and tells him again. This is how God's faithfulness. This is what he did. And here we are. So verse 67 paints this picture. We started in chapter 23. Sarah's tent's empty. And in verse 67 it says, Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The big picture. Sarah's tent is empty in chapter 23. It is filled at the end of chapter 24. God provided. The seed will continue because of God's providential care. It will not fail. It will not fail. So what's the gospel connection with this? 
You see, the, the, the line that was promised in Genesis 3 is going to continue. The seed is coming through the seed of a woman. And yet, here's what you're going to see happening. Woman after woman is going to be barren. So was Sarah. And yet, there's Isaac. There was another young woman that was chosen. In Luke 1, verse 26, God sovereignly selected another young virgin. Her name was Mary. In verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. She didn't sign up for this. She was chosen. What was her response? Look at verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. God says, I've appointed you to this. You're going to bring the seed. You're going to fulfill the promise. She said, Do with me as you will. From that moment that child was, was born, conceived by the Holy Spirit, there was not a chance that anything was going to happen to that child. Though in Matthew 2, Herod decided to kill him. And we see another angel visitation in Matthew 2.13. The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and said, you need to leave. So God providentially protected the seed so that me and you may have life. So do you see God's providential provision down to the minute detail in this narrative? So what is providence? J.I. Packer in his book, Concise Theology, defines it this way, Providence is the exercise of God's divine power whereby He, one, keeps all creatures in being, two, involves Himself in all events, three, directs all things to their appointed ends. And you could be saying, and I hope you are, because I did it intentionally, why did you wait to the end of a sermon to divine providence? This is why I did. Because I simply want you to read God's Word and His narrative and see it. It is not true because some guy writes it in a book. I don't want you to believe it because it's a definition. I want you to believe in God's providence because this is simply how God works. And He never changes. If He, if he works this way in Abraham's life, in Isaac's life, in Jacob's life, then He works that way in our life. And we can trust Him. They did not receive that which God promised them, and they still trusted Him. We can learn something from our God through this. That's why it's important. So the question this morning then is not whether you agree with this with a doctrine. It's what do we see in His world? What do we see in His Word? There was a question and answer to two pastors that's been in ministry well over 40 years, probably more than that now. And they asked, what is the biggest problem in the church in America? There's a light subject. The one said, it's simple. We don't know who God is. The other brother said, we lack, the we lack biblical knowledge and discernment. Listen to what he said. We have spiritual aids and can die a thousand heretical deaths because our spiritual immune system is so weak, a cold might kill us. 
And so what we want to do and what we've been doing, and I hope you've experienced it, is simply laying down these foundational things. This is who God is. And whether you've been to a graduation, if you hadn't been to one, you're going to be. Because <laughs> they're, they're coming, you're going to, we're going to hear this, aren't we? What do we all want? We want comfort. We want a good life. We want a good education. We want a good spouse. But we don't know God. And we don't know His mission. Giving children a pledge to go out and pursue something with no knowledge of God and completely devoid from the mission of God. Comfort, contentment, peace, security do not come from the pursuit of the American dream. They are the children that burst from knowing God. They cannot be obtained naturally. They only come supernaturally. Do you know God? Because there's only one way to know God, and it's through the person of Jesus Christ. It is Him who said, Come to me, all who are laboring or heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Our Jesus is our sovereign brother who has chosen his brothers and sisters and promises us to go before us on the mission that he has given us. So the question this morning is, do God's covenant promises? Does his promised providential provision motivate your worship and drive your mission? Because it did the servants. Romans 12 and verse 2 says, All of our life is worship. All of your life is worship. Please, do not think the songs that we just sang is worship when you, when you have demeaned your spouse this week. That is what you have worshipped. We, we come and gather together, and what we do is simply overflow that which we have worshipped the current week. Our worship reflects it because all of life for a Christian is worship. Providence teaches us that God sovereignly keeps us. He sustains us whether we have cancer or terrorism. It matters not to a believer. Kill me, give me what, what I want. Let me live, I'm going to name Christ. Why? Because God sovereignly keeps us. He sustains us. He involves Himself in our lives in the events, the details that happens, whether they're the trials or the triumphs, and for a true child of God, they love every second of it. I don't want to be left alone to this thing. I'm not alone. He directs my life. He directs the events of my life. He directs my career. He chooses how many children I have. And He says they're all a blessing. This is what God does. This is what... Providence teaches us. And here's what it says. All of this, somebody get that phone, that creates an urgency and a mission. That's what we see, our brothers, an urgency in the mission. Listen, the king intricately involves himself in your life and in your mission. Oh, how I wish I would have heard this today, this week, spoken to young people. 
God not only orders your steps, He also orders the mission. He does not order your steps to just go do what you want to do. Go where you want to go. God orders your steps so you're free to pursue the American dreams. No, you're not. God is a king. He orders your steps. He also orders the mission. So go with the strength that he provides and accomplish the mission. Whether you are a neurosurgeon or back on the back of a trash truck, the mission does not change for a believer. We do what he tells us to do. And Matthew 16, 18 says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's a promise. That's a promise. And don't think for a second that he's telling Peter that we have to all hunker down and try to hang hell back. No, no, no. It's saying that hell can't hold us back. That's the context of the passage. That's why the songs we choose and, and pick is meant to point us to that. When he said it is finished, it was finished. The war has been won. One brother said the devil's just a headless snake thrashing around. He can hurt you, but ultimately he's defeated. So we're guaranteed this. The, God's church, listen, God's church cannot fail. Because God has made a promise. This is not relying on me and you. This is relying on God. And God says, I've given you a mission, so go to it. This is what our patriarchs and our matriarchs believed. Hebrews 11, verse 13, said God has prepared for His covenant people a city. Listen to it, verse 13. And these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, for people who, thus speak, who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Is this not what our Lord said? I go back to prepare a place for you. And when I come again, I will take you where I am. You see, we are warriors fighting abroad, and we're not done. The mission isn't done, and we're not home yet. One day we will be home. Revelation 22 describes that home. Revelation 22 and verse 1 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of this city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Listen to me. If you hate God's sovereignty now, why in the world would you want to go to heaven? This is all it's about in heaven. God's subjects worshiping the Lamb, serving Him forever. This is our delight. 
And how we know we are His is it is our delight now. This is what we are long for. This is where we're headed. So as we come to the end of this time together and we're fixing to stand up and sing about God's sovereignty, I want this one verse to be in your mind. And we know, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. So Lord, what can we say to these things? They are beyond us. Lord, You are the transcendent, infinite God that is independent of anything. You need nothing. You don't need me this morning. But here I stand. And so, Lord, we worship you for your faithfulness because of your purpose to bring glory to your name. You have chosen for yourself a people that you call the church. And so your church has gathered today today to make much of you, not just on Sundays, but how we live. Oh, God, bring repentance to the church. Do we not hurt people? Do we not fight each other? Oh God, where's the mission? You could not have been more clear that our mission is to make disciples, Christ followers of all peoples, including the ones that sit beside of us this morning. Oh God, may we die to ourselves so that we may live for you. Because in living for you is where the joy is. It's where the peace is. It's where the comfort is. And it is where it will be forevermore. For we are your people, chosen for your glory. And you have never lost a child yet. And so, Lord, may that compel us to mission. May we go in that strength of someone who cannot die, who cannot be defeated, because Christ has won our victory, and He is our life. So, Lord, now we stand and proclaim with our voices that you have given us. Using the air that you give us, that you are sovereign over us. You are sovereign over our life. You are sovereign over our circumstances. And you are sovereign over our mission. Give us the strength and the boldness to be about our Father's business. We ask this in our Lord and Savior, our elder brother's name, Jesus, our Messiah. Amen. Stand with us. Amen.